welcome to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio podcast, hosted by Peter O'Toole, sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. Today on The Microscopists. Hi, I'm Peter O'Toole, and today I'm talking with Harry Schroff of the NIH about moving from startups into academia. What finally convinced me was a conversation I had with somebody who said, you know, why don't you just try it and see? Obstacles to success? I I think you're hitting on one of the most difficult things we have to deal with um, in academic science. And the challenges of raising a young family. You know, I I can never replace the mom part of my my wife, right? But but I try when when I'm home. All in this episode of The Microscopist. Hi, I'm Peter O'Toole, and today with me is Harry Schroff from Bethesda, the NIH uh, over there. Harry, hiya. Hi, great to see you. Thanks for letting me do this. Uh, pleasure. And uh, all the more exciting because I hadn't realised when, when we set this up, that actually, well, I guess we wouldn't have realised that you've just, just released a publication in Nature Biotechnology. Yeah, yeah, we're uh, very happy about that. That was uh, a long time coming, uh, so it's it's nice to uh, nice to see that come out this this month. Yeah. So that was on a uh, actually the title is quite wordy. <laughs> mm-hmm. I read through it, uh, so it's actually multifaceted. There's a couple of different new developments within that one publication, isn't there? <laughs> Looking at the CPU, the algorithm, software, and also the dual view approach. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, it was a lot of stuff kind of packed into that article. So it's it's, it's fairly dense, um, and you know, I guess the overarching theme is trying to make some of the processing that we do faster, because that uh, certainly bottlenecks our lab, and you know, we figured it probably bottlenecks many other labs as well. Uh, you know, sort of after you get the microscope image, you need to post-process it. How do you do that uh, quickly, or how can you do it more quickly? And so that's what that article is kind of broadly about. So how many years effort do you think was behind that publication? You know, we, we first started uh, uh, sort of getting down into that maybe five years ago and, and then, you know, sort of picked up steam uh, after that. But, but the, the first inklings were probably in 2015. Uh, and then, you know, there's the whole sort of year long saga of getting it published right which also takes time sort of sending it out getting the reviews back uh, which is which is kind of lengthy so yeah years of of uh, time and how many staff years so how many teachers, phds postdocs uh you know i um innumerable staff years because they're the sort of core group of people in my lab and then we worked fairly closely with other um other researchers in china um, at a University of Chicago, and then there were all of the biologists that we enlisted to help with sample prep. So, so many, many staff years. It was really a collaborative effort, uh, which we're just sort of lucky that you know that, that's becoming in some ways easier and easier. I think to do. So, so that it was interesting. You talk, it's, it's amazing the number of years that it can take to get a publication out, and the cost of that, the cost of science is huge because of mm-hmm. all that effort and the team efforts that are needed behind it. It was interesting you said you recruited loads of biologists because I guess, would you count yourself or class yourself as a biologist? You know, I'm kind of uncomfortable with, with, with labels, but I think most people would say that I'm not a biologist. You know, I, I love biology and being able to contribute to biology with some of the tools that we build. And we have a couple of biological projects in our lab, but um, I, I, I guess I, even I wouldn't characterize myself as a biologist. So we benefit greatly from, from collaborating with, with bona fide bi- biologists. So you started out, if I remember correctly, your undergraduate was bioengineering? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then, was that straight then with Eric Betzig, or was there something between that? So yeah, between the bioengineering undergrad and, and uh, the time with Betzig, I did a PhD at UC Berkeley doing biophysics. So the kind of common thread, I guess you could say, both from the bioengineering and the biophysics was kind of an interest in tool building. Uh, you know, very different kinds, um, but but the sort of love of instrumentation really kind of took off as an undergraduate, and then you know I did more of that as a PhD student at Berkeley, and then with Eric Betzig uh, in microscopy. So, so your love for instrumentation 
was that always microscopes so um you know it's there's always a link to imaging i would say so as an undergraduate i uh, i played around with honeybees so the guy that i worked for as an undergraduate you know was actually in the chemistry department he was an analytical chemist that had invented a pressure sensitive paint that he had used to coat airfoils so like uh, if you want to understand the pressure distribution on an airplane wing he had actually marketed this paint to boeing and you know by the time i joined his lab he was kind of getting close to retirement but he had this crazy idea of using this paint to try and coat the surface of a honeybee wing uh, so the paint gave off a signal a phosphorescent signal that was inversely proportional to the amount of oxygen so it was an oxygen sensor and the idea is that when a when a honeybee flaps its wings his dream was to try and see if you could actually measure that distribution of of oxygen pressure using this paint and so it was my job to kind of figure out how to put the paint on the wing of a honeybee and then image it. So not exactly microscopy or sort of microscopy, but we weren't using microscopes to try and do this. Did that so, work? Sure. No. So it didn't work uh, like we hoped on the honeybee because the honeybee is just too fast. So it beats its wings on the order of hundreds of frames per second. And you know, we, were, uh, we just didn't have the signal to noise ratio we needed. But in the course of trying to do that, I learned a ton, and it really got me interested in research. And I actually built a very crude instrument, uh, what we called the pressure-sensitive microphone. It was just a tube of PVC uh, pipe with a, fin a film of this honeybee, uh, of this polymer containing the, um, the paint that we put on the honeybee at one end of the pipe, and then a speaker at the other end. And so we would fire sound waves at one end of the pipe and then detect the response using the paint. So it wasn't like a microscope in any conventional uh, way that you think about it. You weren't looking at anything, but it, but it sort of served the same purpose in being able to characterize the response of this thin film of phosphorescent paint uh, in response to the sound waves. So it's, it's quite neat. So I guess even then, not fluorescence per se, but still the illumination of light from, from chemicals. Exactly. Uh, which yeah. from there onwards as well so it's kind of brought that both those parts together quite nicely so when was the first time you actually used a microscope properly so so i don't know about properly but the first time i ever used a microscope i was probably a kid and my parents brought bought me one of these cheap microscopes that i just you know it had a bunch of uh, kind of pre-built slides that i put on the microscope and then i i think there may have been some ability to to kind of make my own slide but it was it was, it was very, um, uh, very basic, you know, so like, you know, I, I might have collected some leaves or something and tried to magnify those. And that was definitely fun. But the first time that I actually used a microscope properly would have been, you know, much later, probably, you know, as an undergraduate or possibly even as a graduate student, when I was trying to make my own microscopes. Um, so, you know, there was, there was a bit of a gap, gap, gap in there before I used a proper microscope. So, so actually a question. So. Uh, you you actually spent a long time in the UK. If, if I'm I did. Uh, yeah, so I was was born in India, but then when I was one year old, my parents moved to the UK trying to get better jobs. Um, and so they were both medical doctors and they kind of trained in the UK. Um, and we moved around a fair bit in the UK. But, but from one to nine, I actually grew up in the UK uh, in different towns in England. So whereabouts? So uh, a lot of time in Birmingham, and then some time in um, Stoke-on-Trent, okay. uh, which I kind of kind of remember remember fondly, and then uh, and then moving moving over to the U.S. Yeah, so so I'm a Brummy as well. So I, for those who don't know what a Brummy is, Brummy is someone who is from Birmingham uh, as a city, uh, second biggest city in the U.K. So actually, I, I am a Brummy, I guess. What born north, went south. It was an interesting place years ago. Um, oh yeah, it's it, it's very. I go back now. It's it's a really multicultural, diverse, vibrant city. It's really nice. reinvented itself. But I'm not so sure it was like that when I was a child. Certainly, I remember going in as a teenager into the city, and it was it, there was some places that were good. There was other places that you were not so good. I, I don't know what your memories are like of the city at the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, akin to yours in some ways. So I I've kind of mixed emotions about Birmingham. I mean, uh, you know, like, like you've said, I'm sure it's much better now. But when I was there as a kid, I, you know, some of my memories, unfortunately, were of other, ki other kids calling me Packy. 
uh, as, as a school child. So that was kind of a rough, rough time growing up uh, there. Um, you know, one of the good things about sort of England in general and, and the educational system there is that I felt that I was way ahead of my peers when I came to the US. So the, the kind of educational system was, was great, but, but, um, but it was kind of a rough time growing up as a kid in parts of England for this reason. Yeah, I, I, I can imagine areas that it, it would be yeah. like that, certainly. Like, but certainly, it's, I, I, there's always going to be areas, I guess, that are still not. Yeah. Like, but actually, Birmingham as a whole is actually a, it's a really cool place to go now. So I yeah. my parents still live near there, so I, I visit there. Don't oh, yeah. Have to go into the city, though, but it is, it's quite an attraction, though. People actually visit Birmingham. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go to Birmingham because they had to, whereas now they would actually choose to visit it. That's that's awesome. So the kind of industrial feel has turned around. Yeah. yeah very much so. Uh, so what do you miss? You know, uh, I um. UK. Yeah, I mean, I miss I miss going for walks in the countryside with my parents. I mean, that's something that we we did still did in the United States, but I, I just miss miss the kind of lovely you know, English hedgerows and hedge mazes and and I miss um, you know parts of London. So I had I have an aunt in London, and and we would sort of go there for a treat to visit her. I miss Trafalgar Square and Regent's Park and and walking around that area as a as a kid, um, you know, and I I. I I, I frankly miss my nannies. So, you know, the, the notion of like an English nanny is something that was, you know, my, my, my parents both worked a lot when I was a kid. And so I had great, um, great nannies who taught me all sorts of things, you know, as, as, a, as a child. And I miss all of that too. I've, I've, I have very fond memories of growing up in England as well. Oh, that's good. And, and come on, you were in Birmingham for nine years or roughly nine years. You must miss the chocolate. You know, I, I miss I miss in general English chocolate and and European chocolate uh, compared to some of the crap that you get over here in in the states. Um, so I do I do miss that too. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 just for you, Heath. Look. Oh, nice Cadbury's. Which is, of course, a Birmingham confectionery. It's a. You, you know, it's funny you say that. I, I I actually remember walking by a Cadbury's factory, and it probably was in Birmingham. Um, I, I, I have vague memories of this. Yes. Yeah. So Bourneville. So that was probably four miles up the road from where, was, where we moved when I was about six to the south of Birmingham. And it's about four miles away from Bourneville. Yeah. And it's not that easy as you, as, as you say, to get that here, yeah. uh, to get that sort of chocolate here in the, in the States. Yeah. Good milk chocolate. I, I, I love dark chocolate, but there's always a place for, for Cadbury's. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. We started talking about earlier. So you went uh, to America, you went through your PhD days and then ended up at, Geneva Research Campus or Geneva Farm as it was then. What was that like? Because that, that's quite a different environment. It is, yeah. I mean, um, I would say that for a postdoc, it was uh, an amazing environment in the sense that you could really focus on your research. I mean, there were very few distractions and funding was uh, easy to come by at the HHMI Geneva Farm. So these were some of the good things. I think, um, you know, one of the challenging things is that that, that very um, sort of myopic view on microscopy and neuroscience meant that in some ways it was difficult to get a broader broader view as to what was going on. And that's one of the things that I like very much about the NIH. And, I, and that I miss, frankly, in a university setting. You know, so the, at Genelia, the uh, dominant um, kind of uh, life form, let's say, is the postdoc and the PI, and that's great. Um, but I do miss, in some ways, being around university campuses and the kind of broader exposure you get. But there's no question that you know, from my career, being at Genelia for two and a half years was amazing. And you know, some of that was Genelia, some of that was Palm and Betzing, um, and sort of being at the right place at the right time. So it was, was in some ways very lucky that I got into that. And it was, it was just luck. You know, I was finishing my PhD at Berkeley and wondering what to do uh, for a postdoc. And I love microscopy. You know, I saw many of my um, peers at Berkeley going to all of these kind of you know, wonderful labs, but in some ways standard labs, right? So you, there's sort of this notion that, you know, as a postdoc, you have to get into a good lab and, and do a good postdoc to get a good position. But frankly, I had no idea what I wanted to do um, when I was finishing my PhD. And when I was wondering about that, Betzig rolled through Berkeley, kind of an unknown. You know, he had spent a decade plus basically uh, in his living room, you know, dreaming up microscopy ideas. And he was just, he, he himself had just gotten this job at Genelia Farm. And so, you know, he gave this talk on what would eventually become the precursor of the lattice light sheet microscope, lattice microscopy. And, you know, I, his talk kind of blew me away. You know, he was a tool builder. He'd been out of the business for 
a decade, but he really wanted to build microscopes that could enable biology. And something about that spoke to me. So I remember speaking to my peers, sort of telling me, what, what the heck are you doing? You know, this guy has been out of science for more than a decade. What is Genelia Farm and why would you go there? So, you know, this was a big risk at the time. He was in, in some ways kind of a no-name getting back into microscopy. And Genelia was also unproven at the time. You know, I was one of the first 100 people to go to Genelia. But, you know, something about his talk really spoke to me. And I, I liked the idea of working in kind of a biological Bell Labs environment. And this, this was, uh, for better or worse, it was the right move, you know, um, because I worked very closely with him. And I, again, just luck, I, I you know, happened to get into the Palm Storm business early. Um, and I'm, I'm not doing that anymore. You know, like when I started at my own lab at NIH, I, I, I could kind of see the writing on the wall. I didn't want to keep doing that. Uh, but but there's no question that that this was luck favoring the prepared mind um, and, and being able to take a risk, you know, paid off in this in this venue. So we can talk more about that if you want. But I think it was the right move for me at the time. I, I love the way you said you could see the writing on the wall for Palm and Storm. <laughs> in what context? You're saying it's oh, yeah. so, God, it's all yesterday's work. Yeah. So, so, you know, for two and a half years with Betzig, I kind of lived and breathed Palm. I mean, that's all I did. And, you know, there was a ton of developmental work that had to be done on this technology. I was late to the, par the, to the party, you know, uh, Betzig and Xiaowei Zhuang and Sam Hess's papers had all come out before I joined Betzig's lab. But it was, it was clear there was a lot of work that had to be done, developmental work. And I was fortunate to do all of that. At the same time, after doing my postdoc, I had done so much of that stuff that I was sick of it. And one of the things that drew me to the NIH is that my, uh, the person that recruited me there and eventually gave me a job, Richard Liebman, you know, he said when I joined, he said, I don't want you to be doing the same thing in five years. And that was you know, aligned perfectly with where I saw myself because I, I didn't want to be doing bomb storm development in five years. And when I say I could see the writing on the wall, I meant that I could see as I was doing my postdoc and many other people kind of getting in to this field. And as a technology developer, I just didn't want to um, sort of be part of that bandwagon, you know, which isn't to say that there, there wasn't and hasn't been fantastic development work in that area. I mean, after all, it won a Nobel Prize, but um, I just thought it would be easier if I could start to kind of do other things, you know, in my in my career. And so that's what I what I meant. No diss on the the wonderful developmental work that has been done by many other people in that area. Too late. You've done it. You've dissed it. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I have. Yeah. Uh, a little bit. So, so that, that's sort of what I meant. And I, I just wanted to kind of move on to other things a little bit. I, I think you're right, though, because as you say, once it's developed, the big bangs happened and it becomes a very crowded market. Uh, as exactly. Iterations and, and techniques to, to, to fill different niches, uh, which are very needed, uh, but maybe not so big an impact on the broader field, whereas you, you've gone off, developed your own and really moved into an area where you've made your own name, uh, certainly through the lattice light sheet and the algorithms been applied for that for speeding it up. So how did you find setting up your own lab? Um, intimidating and, 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 and difficult. Um, yeah, so I, um, I, I got some good advice when I, when I was getting into starting my own lab, which is that you want to start small and that the people you really hire in the beginning can make or break your lab. And so I, I really took that to heart. And in fact, you know, when I started, I, I, by the way, I wasn't involved in any of the lattice light sheet work. That all came after me. But I, I, I was interested in light sheet microscopy. And so, you know, I, I had just a few ideas, you know, I wanted to kind of extend palm. Some of the work that I did in Genelia, uh, in fact, all of it was all limited to 2D. And I wanted to try and do three-dimensional imaging and sort of, uh, as you say, kind of make a, make a name in that area. And so, you know, there were a few ideas that I had when I started my own lab. I wanted to do 3D palm. So that's one of the first projects that I did with my postdoc. Um, and but then I wanted to move on to other stuff, you know, in, in 3D imaging. And so I, I knew that I wanted to do something in light sheet microscopy. And I, you know, I, I, I was kind of interested in structural illumination microscopy as well. But I had only a handful of projects when I started. And I, re I really only had a, had, had a handful of people. I think I hired one post back, sort of similar to somebody who had an undergraduate degree and worked as a technician. And then I took my time hiring postdocs. For the first few years, I had just two, and they were both excellent. So, um, so to answer your question, I mean, it was intimidating and difficult. And the way I kind of dealt with that 
is I tried to work on just very few ideas and invest a lot of my own energy in making those work uh, at the beginning so that I kind of had a foothold when I started my own lab. And I feel like that really was the right strategy for me because having a bit of success builds confidence. And, you know, it, it kind of gave me the confidence to know that I could do this by myself and, you know, with the help of my lab. Um, so that, that's sort of honestly how I felt in the beginning. It, you know, I, and there's one story that I remember that um, when I, when I, so when I just came in, my lab space wasn't ready. And in fact, the NIH is great, but one, one I, w- I won't say failing, but one issue is, and maybe this is characteristic of people everywhere when they start their labs, but for nine months, I was in a conference room where I would order equipment and it would land in the conference room and a, a surprising amount of science got done. So we had an optical table and, you know, we, I don't know if we could even float the table, but we started to build stuff on that table and at least hammer out some of the microscopes. But, um, but the kind of one moment that I remember, so I, you know, I came in on my first day into this conference room and I think I just had a laptop that had been ordered for me and some Thor Labs boxes. And I, I had a desk that I had pillaged from some other surplus and I sat down and I, I sat down with my laptop and my, my deputy director walked in with a laptop and he said, he gave me the laptop and told me how to connect to the internet. And he said, well, I'm sure you must be very busy now. <laughs> and he left me to it. And I started to wonder, is this the right thing? Like, what am I doing? You know, like sitting in a room, em- essentially an empty room with this laptop and some Thor Labs boxes. And I was wondering what the heck I was doing. So that, that's how I started my lab. I started without clean water and without any microscopes at all, all of which I built. Uh, but I was fortunate to be in a very supportive environment. And I made a point of emailing different PIs in the Institute and having lunch with a different person every day for the first few months to kind of, you know, start to know what was going on at NIH. And so that's, I just kind of tag, tackled the uncertainty head on, you know, but, but yeah, there's this fear, you know, as a new PI and, in some sense, aspects of that fear never really go away. So to all new PIs, I would just say embrace the uncertainty as best as you can and know that you're not alone. And it gets easier if you can stick with it, because in the beginning, you're doing everything by yourself. Um, so, so you're in the lab, obviously, as well, quite a lot at the start as well. So has yeah. that changed? Are you still in the lab as much as you were, or are you now more office-bound? Yeah, so I am, I am more office-bound, but I do stay very close to the research. And in fact, when my lab did get built, one thing that I insisted upon was that my office is kind of in, in, in the center of my lab. So if you were to come visit, which I hope you do at some point the next time you can, uh, you'd see that you know, my lab is kind of arranged with optics labs around the office. And my postdoc office is kind of right next to mine. So I, um, I am much less like at the optical bench because as my lab has grown, I spend a lot more time managing my people, but I make a point of trying to speak to everybody in my lab at least once a day, at least just to find out how things are going. And I, I really want to know how things are going and in particular, how things are failing. Um, I'm really interested in knowing that as a PI um, and I like to stay very close to the research, but it has changed. So in the beginning, I was kind of building the hardware until my postdocs told me that I shouldn't do that, that they were better at it than, than I was, which is true. Um, and now I spend more of my time writing papers and talking to people about their projects and strategizing about optical design. Every once in a while, I'll write some part of a piece of software, but, but it, it changes, or it has changed for me. So you're, you're asking your team about how they are or how the labs go. You also, also I, I certainly find, finding out what's going on in their personal lives or being engaged at that as well is really important. Uh, it's important for me certainly to, to know what's going on uh, and for them to have an outlet as well because they don't always have easy outlets out because a lot of them are transient. They come in from different places. They haven't necessarily got a social circle. So yeah, I guess you met at, the, at the start, I bet you would possibly even go to the bar or eating out with them because you'd have landed there, yeah, they yeah. your team. Uh, but that must have changed as well. That you, you have a family now. Yeah, 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 it has changed. So, you know, one thing that, that hasn't changed is, you know, like, like you said, going out for a meal, I try and make myself available, available for lunch every day with my lab because I do think that's one time, you know, they don't always want to eat lunch with me, but at least that's, I have to eat lunch too, right, in the lab. And so that's one time when I'm accessible. But you're right, it, it's changed. And, you know, more recently it's changed, like you said, because I have a family. I have a daughter who's a year and a half old and that, that has kind of sucked there we go. Yeah, there she is. Uh, little, cute, by the way, so a thank you. Yeah, uh, uh, that's that's Amelie. 
a few a few months ago now, so maybe a, a year and a few months there in that picture. And yeah, that, that that you know, she for better or for worse has kind of sucked all the energy out of my life after the after the science. Uh, it's kind of an all a, a full time job outside of science, right? As being a dad, as as I'm sure all the dads know who are listening to this. Um, and so there is there is less time for doing things with the lab, for example. Afterwards, you know, I I, um, I like to climb, and every once in a while I can go climbing with uh, people in the lab, or even we have a climbing group. There, uh, there we go. Yeah, thank you. Uh, uh, outside the lab, other postdocs and other PIs at the NIH. So that's one outlet for me outside of the lab and outside of my family. But but all of that has been made more difficult right now anyway by by my daughter because I I like to as much as possible share the duty with my wife, even though it's impossible to share, you know, I, I can never replace the mom part of my, my wife, right? But, but I try when, I, when I'm home and in the morning somewhat. So, so you say that, but is this not your daughter on a climbing wall? So you're not yeah, trying to combine yeah. everything here. Yeah, I, I would love to get her on a climbing wall as soon as, as soon as she's able. And now she's kind of running around, but I like to, this isn't a playground near our house, um, uh, nearby where there's a mini kind of, Climbing wall, and, and actually, she's shown that she likes to climb even in our apartment. So she she's climbing on all kinds of things, like on our furniture, and then she also likes to climb like on the grates that we use to to, to separate her from where we are occasionally, like the kitchen. Yeah. And she will be a climber when she grows up. Uh, that, 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 it's fun times. It does yeah. make finding time to uh, socialize with your team much more difficult. At, at that yeah. Point. Uh, which changes the dynamics a little, but and actually, as your team mature as well, they 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 find themselves in a similar position. Yeah, I mean, I think you know one of the biggest uh, changes for me with respect to the team dynamic is just appreciating people in my lab that have kids what they have to do, right? I mean, that's something that you kind of understand as the abstract in the in the abstract, but at least for me, like having a kid myself really drove that home, right? It is not easy. I mean to to maintain any semblance of work-life balance like with your family. And so I, I do have more respect for that um, being a dad myself. So, which is, which is good. I and mean, how large is your team though? So uh, in my lab in particular, there may be between eight and 10 people, depending how you count. But then yeah. I also supervise a, a trans NIH imaging facility, which is kind of like a core facility with just a few staff scientists. And the idea is that they try and uh, deploy advanced instruments that I like home-built instruments that people in my lab and other PIs at NIH build they try people in this core facility try and make that more accessible so there are three people in that facility as well um, so when you count them it's more like 13 uh, people and they were, so those three will probably have a very different mindset over the postdocs that, that are doing the research side because it's it's no lesser a job technically but it's a very different mindset because now I guess they're interacting with lots of biologists and trying to share and spread their expertise and use their expertise to develop lots of applications rather than use specializing in one area and just building that one, one mistake. Have you, how do you find the differences in personalities between those two? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you, you know, you're, you're absolutely right, right? So there's, on the one hand, the very technical diving into, in you know, my case, like what makes a microscope better? So thinking carefully about like what, what breaks microscopes, because you will never find a microscope that is not defeated by a sample. So I think the interaction with biologists is critical for that aspect also. It feeds back into the technical aspects. And in fact, I love it when biologists come to use the microscopes like in my lab. As you say though, like a, a core facility manager is gonna be more interested maybe with making a biological experiment work. And I have immense respect for that because you know, I, I, I view this as kind of a continuum, right? I mean, you have your instrument developer, but siloing the instrument developer, like, you know, in a space where they never interact with biologists is just totally a mistake, right? Because then they, you know, they invent something which may or may not be useful. And for me, like building things that are useful is kind of the reason that I have a job, right? I, you know, I'm lucky that I have time in my ivory tower where I can think about the physics of a microscope. But to me, if it's not used by a, bio by a biologist in the end, I mean, it's kind of useless at the very end of the process. So I, I, you know, you're right. Like the mindset is different in a core facility or even in this kind of advanced core facility where they're trying to disseminate the technology. You know, they really have to be looking at what makes something useful and how to make it more useful. And I, I, I just think that's so useful. It's so important 
you know, for the instrument de developer to kind of see um, and to interact with. Uh, it is a bit of a different mindset, though. Yeah, I guess one nice bit is you've got a team that is developing impact and another team that is delivering the impact. Yeah. Uh, so it's really quite nice to have both set up there. And you're absolutely right. Those new technologies need support because they're not off the shelf products at that point. Um, yeah. And, and some of them may, some of them may never be off the shelf, right? We've been fortunate that we've commercialized some things at NIH, but um, you know, there, there are going to be other technologies that are just too difficult to do that. Or maybe there's not enough of a market. Yeah. And you see quite a lot of startups who, actually say that you're right they siloed into a room they think they know what they're doing from an engineer perspective they develop something but at the end it's not that useful to the end user uh, they've you know they've moved away from what the end user and how they would engage with it because trust me biologists are very different animals compared to other science bases likewise the chemist is different to a physicist and so forth and, uh, it's quite difficult i think to, for them to get an appreciation of that just going back, we started talking about your first publication as well. Or not your first, your, your latest publication, but what is your favorite publication of all time? That you've um, you know, I, I don't know if I, if I would say that I have a favorite, but there are, there are maybe a couple that stand out. I mean, one would have to be my first paper as a graduate student, which was you know, rejected three times before it was accepted. And I think that was a valuable learning experience for me for you know, some of the the hassles and difficulty of, of being an academic. I mean, that, that feature, uh, feature or downside hasn't gone away. My papers are still rejected all the time. But, um, but, but that was kind of a landmark thing, right? As a first author, getting my first paper published. And that, that paper was uh, a bit ahead of its time, but, but actually is being cited more. It was on force sensing, making a molecular force sensor using FRET. Um, so that, that was kind of a favorite just because it was my first. And then, you know, a couple of the early papers from my lab too, right, that ended up kind of laying the groundwork, like the Dice BIM or the Instant Sim papers, you know, are, are kind of, you know, I would consider them important foundational papers from my lab because they built a solid foundation for which other papers kind of landed on top. And, and you, know, you know, again, those papers were published with just a handful of people in the lab. So they're special for, for you know, for that reason. So it was interesting, the, the first one you said that, well, your favorite that it was ahead of its time when you published it. Uh, so it doesn't gather many citations early on if it's ahead of its time generally, and it takes time and then that momentum grows and then it does become more and more published. But as a, if you're reviewing, if, if you were being reviewed, they're going to be looking at your publications and citations are, are naturally one of the things they quite often look at. I presume it's the same with yourself. So how, how do you cope with that? So well, it is great work. And now, now you can look back 10 years ago or more and say, look, it really was fantastic. And yet at the time, you could be getting heat for, for not having the citations or the publications not having the impact, just because I, by the very nature, technology takes time to be adopted. And, yeah, yeah. And then actually published, you, you're talking, as you said, five years sometimes to get it to publication. So it's quite Yes, I, I think you're hitting on one of the most difficult things we have to deal with um, in academic science, which is uh, you know, measuring impact and, and papers and, uh, and, and you know, fundamentally, I think this arises from the time scale issue that you pointed out, right? That measuring what somebody's um, work is worth is something that takes time. It takes time for that to have an impact and to be picked up by other people and frankly used by other scientists, right? And this is very difficult because uh, uh, promotions and hiring somebody as a PI, I mean, you know, what do they have to look at? You know, somebody once told me that, you know what, like these measures of H index and citation count and where you publish ultimately, you know, have poor correlation or can have poor correlation with the quality of a scientist, but scientists like to count. And that's the problem, right? In a finite time, how do you measure this? I mean, in a perfect world, you would read people's papers, you would talk to their references, but the problem is that the reviewers have only finite time and so how do you reconcile these issues? And I think there's no perfect answer, right? I mean, the advocates of the kind of reading the science would say, well, what are you talking about? Of course you should read every paper. Of course you shouldn't pay attention to where it's published. And that, you know, being on the other side of it as a reviewer, yes, you should do those things, but it's extraordinarily hard as a reviewer, right? If you're looking at two candidates, one who has, you know, many more citations and many more papers and high impact journal, it's extraordinarily difficult to, to 
do the right thing, let's say, right? So I, I just want to acknowledge this is a tension that you face at every, at every level of your career, right? It's just hard. There is a pyramid in how you judge scientists. And, um, you know, we, we all just have to be conscious, right, of these biases that are baked into the system, including the citations, as you mentioned. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't have a perfect answer. I mean, when I try and um, get my postdocs a job, right, I mean, as, as an academic, I, you know, you have a frank conversation and you say that the chance of getting to, you know, that one academic job is vanishingly small. It's just hard. And if, you know, if you want to play that game, of course, we will try and publish a paper in the best journal we can for you. I mean, one of the things I try and do is I relinquish corresponding authorship always to the first author on my papers. That's a small thing I can do, right? Uh, because credit naturally flows upwards, right? But of course, yeah. the people that, that do the work are the people that need the credit. Um, and it, it's hard in academia, right, to, to acknowledge the, the work uh, that, that is being done by the people that actually do the work. Yeah, and I, I think what's sad is I think many realize and appreciate what you're saying. And yet everyone falls back to the, the status quo of going back to those citations and stuff. I think sometimes it's vital to publish. That, that is without question. Even if it's not in a top-ranked journal, it is, you have to show output. You have to share what you haven't learned or what you've learned that hasn't worked even. You, you need to get that out there somehow because uh, we are being paid to do yeah, that. Yeah, and the finite resources, right? I mean, this is why I think publishing in peer-reviewed journals is important for the same reason, right? I mean, despite the flaws of peer review, I mean, there, there's something about it that is, you know, over time inherently error-correcting, right? I mean, yeah. So... Moving on, it's quite a very serious, almost a depressing subject, really, because we're not going to change the world on it. So I'm going to ask you some quick fire questions. Please. Okay, so, so it's one or the other, as quick as you can. So, tidy or messy? Messy. Yeah, I can tell by the whiteboard behind you. Design, or, design over or function? Function. Soccer or American football? Soccer. Oh, good man. You'd be yeah, that's absolutely right. Baseball or soccer? Soccer. Baseball. I, I, just, I just want to say that baseball is boring. I mean, I think everybody acknowledges that baseball is boring. Even the baseball players think it's boring. If you look at them, they're chewing gum <laughs> or tobacco. You've probably just offended loads of people, but yeah, yeah maybe yeah. It, yeah, it's not my. It's not my. It doesn't mean it's not fun to have a beer and you know I, I don't know eat, eat, eat a snack in the bleachers, but it is boring. <laughs> well, why John saying that? I, I quite like cricket. There you go. Yeah, so di different. It's a it's a very technical game. Is cricket? It's very tactical. So it's, mm -hmm. that's good from that side. Uh, thinking of not my cup of tea. Tea or coffee? Uh, coffee. Pizza or burger? Pizza. Indian or Chinese? Indian, but it's 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 tough. I like Chinese food a lot too. Well, what's it like over in America? Because UK is brilliant for Indian restaurants. The Chinese are pretty good. Go, go to mainland Europe, uh, really not quite the same. I mean, UK does exceptionally well. Yeah, yeah. So I would say it's a strong function of where you happen to live. Uh, we're very lucky that the NIH and its surrounding area is home to many, many uh, immigrants, which is a wonderful thing, including Chinese. And so the Chinese restaurants around NIH are fantastic. Uh, I live in DC, where there are also good restaurants, but it can be somewhat harder to find kind of authentic food, uh, authentic Chinese food, and same with Indian food. Yeah, I, I, so actually, I, I'm with you with it, with pizza, Indian, coffee, well, yeah, definitely. Oh, nice, good man. Coffee, <laughs> definitely throughout it, so per perfect answers. Car or bike? Say again? Car or bike? Oh, um, you know, I prefer to walk uh, uh, when I can. Um, I... I, I, I'm using my car now because of COVID uh, to, to drive to NIH. Um, and I, I admire people that cycle and bike. I wish that I could get more into it. But given the choice, I would prefer to walk <laughs> over either of those. Yeah. That's fair enough. Uh, book or TV? Book. Uh, UK or US? Ooh. Um, US is uh, having a tough time right now. <laughs> Uh, but I'm a U.S. citizen, so I'm going to have to go with U.S. Yeah, boo. No, I, I, <laughs> teasing. So you're into books. So, so that was a very unequivocal, definitely books. So what are you reading at the moment? 
Right now, I'm reading um, a book that I would, uh, by an author that I would, I would totally recommend. A very thoughtful sci-fi author called Ted Chiang, and one of his short stories has been made into a movie called Arrival, which was a 2016 movie, which is a fantastic movie about aliens uh, arriving. And it's, it's not actually about aliens, but um, so I like I like reading sci-fi, but I also like reading books about science and uh, books about um, big things that happen in science. Uh, like molecular biology or Feynman, um, so I, I like both both uh, science fiction and fiction and nonfiction. Okay, do you get much time to to do much extracurricular reading? Usually, when the uh, when the baby goes to sleep at around eight o'clock, I have a few hours where I'm either doing more um, research work, science work, or I have time to read. Yeah, and how do you find balancing that work life? side of things i think i've just kind of come come to kind of accept it i mean I, in fact i can't even remember what the heck i did before i had my baby i mean i, I sometimes wonder what the hell i did <laughs> with all of my time <laughs> i don't know um yeah i mean I, I balance it as best as i can i mean you know gone are the days when i could easily go to the lab on the weekends i mean that's pretty rare i would say that my work has transitioned to more you know, reading papers and writing an email when i'm back home um, it, it, it's just hard, you know, it's hard to do it. I mean, I'm, you know, uh, especially when our, when our daughter was born, I was tired all the time. And now her, that her hours are more normal, it's easier for me. I can snatch a few hours after she's gone to bed, whether it's reading or you know, watching the occasional TV show or um, doing more work, catching up at work. But uh, it's difficult. I would say that, my, you know, sleep is the predominant thing that is difficult. So that's, that's what I find that gets sacrificed in favor of work-life balance. Yeah. So actually, just thinking about the current time, so COVID-19, uh, yeah. the lockdown, I know you were locked down uh, as well. Did that, how, how did you find the lockdown? How did that affect your work-life balance? Was it good, bad, indifferent? You know, you know for me, um, you know, in some ways, the work-life balance hasn't changed all that much because of COVID, because I was writing papers and I got reviewed at NIH virtually. So uh, the people that have really suffered on the work end are unfortunately the experimentalists in my lab, right? Those guys have been, you know, champions of trying to like milk existing data sets that they can work on remotely. But a time has come for them where they're really feeling the pinch of not being able to do experiments. You know, as far as work-life balance, I'm trying to find the silver lining being able to spend more time with my daughter, right? I mean, this is kind of a wonderful time because I can go for a walk with her uh, to the dog park. You know, she loves dogs right now um, in a way that I wouldn't have been able to do with like a regular lab uh, schedule. So, so there is some silver lining in spite of the uh, COVID. I mean, it, it's, it's occasionally difficult to balance the time with my wife because our office is our bedroom. So she has a desk and I have a bed and her rocker chair that she used when our baby was small. So that part of it is kind of a little bit uncomfortable. And I actually do find myself missing coming into the office yeah. uh, and the lab. Which at least you're in there today. That's true. Yeah. Not so bad on that side. Yeah. So that, that, that's a difficulty in balancing that, uh, and especially with lockdown and having that space. But there's, there's always a time that's very difficult in someone's career. Uh, mm. You're still very young, you know, uh, but hugely successful. But you must have had difficult, uh, difficult periods. So what have you found? Mo what's been the most challenging time that you've had to overcome today? I think, um, yeah, so, so two times come to mind. One is a graduate student when I, I kind of like went through this transition of like learning that, you know, at, at the end of the day, like I'm responsible for everything in my PhD. And maybe most people that have you know, the two PhDs have some period of intense misery in their, in their PhD. Mine was realizing that my advisor was just going to leave me to it. You know, so I, I published a paper, you know, on this, this force sensor idea early, and then I wanted to apply it to live cells. And I realized I had this sort of dawning realization that what I did to make this force sensor was not going to work in living cells. And I, my advisor was not going to help me <laughs> to do this. And he, he even said as much, you know, he said that his job was to kind of make me transition, you know, into basically doing everything myself. And, you know, I thank, I, I thank him now, but it was difficult to hear at the time. So that was the closest that I came to kind of an existential crisis. And, you know, in the abstract, I sort of knew, right, that was what a PhD was about. You go to reading about science, like actually really doing the science yourself, even if you fail. 
uh, at doing it. And there were lots of failures, you know, during that time. So that was difficult. And I got through it. Yeah. So what, what sort of supervisor were you then? So I, um, what I would say is that I try and let my, at least right now, I try and let people have their own failures, but I am kind of obsessed with failure because particularly for the postdocs, this is their career on the line, right? So I want to know what the problems are so that I can help them attack it, right? Whether it's finding a plan B or reframing a paper or what, what their research is. So, you know, I would say that I'm highly hands-on in the sense that I want to know the details, but I, I also want my postdocs to get the experience of building things themselves. I mean, where I'm not so good at this is the writing because I, it's very difficult for me to not commandeer the writing of, of a paper even now. You know, I, 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 um, I have a tendency to start writing drafts you know, well before we have all of the data. And maybe that's, maybe that's something I need to work on as a PI. Um, but, but, you know, I, I also want to make sure that my, my postdocs and you know, the, the few graduate students that I have have this experience of failing a little bit. I think that's so important if you do your own science. And I've, I've supervised the gamut of people that are highly independent and, you know, they don't want me, my input at all to people on the other end where, you know, they, they, they need more of me. And I think that's one of the most difficult things as a PI. And that kind of leads me into the second most difficult period, which is at the end of my postdoc wondering what to do. I mean, I was a little bit burned out after my postdoc. You know, after doing all this POM, I was on the one hand fortunate that, you know, there were, act, there were many institutes that wanted somebody that did POM. And, but then I was in the position of not being, not being, you know, wanting to be their super resolution person, you know, wanting to do something else. And I, and I also explored like being part of a company, um, you know, so I explored a few startups at the end of my postdoc. And what finally convinced me was a conversation I had with somebody who said, you know, why don't you just try it? You know, and see, you know, how this PI thing would go uh, and see if you like it. And if it doesn't work, you can go do something else. So, but that was also kind of like a difficult time. And, you know, as we said at the beginning of our conversation, the fear, right, of being able to kind of do it uh, via a PI, that was, you know, also something, I, you know, maybe I shouldn't be complaining right? because, you know, I, I also have the luxury of being able to get a job and be a PI. That's such a, a fortunate thing, right, in science. Yeah. And, but you made a success of it. Well and true. Yeah, somehow. Yeah. Do you still have a burning issue to maybe try being in a company one day? Not right now. You know, every once in a while, like what I what gives me pause about your question is that I worry about like ideas, about having good ideas, and you know, like I I like to do things that are a little bit off the beaten path if I can, you know, and I and I like to do things that at least I feel like have some chance of having an impact. And my fear, I guess would be regressing to some mean thing where lots of other people are doing the same thing that I'm thinking about. So I worry about having good ideas. Um, but every time I think about running out of ideas, something comes up, right? And, and the latest thing is this massive playground, which is deep learning, right? Which I'm learning a lot about myself. This kind of old technology that has resurged. And right now it seems like there's an infinity of things one could do with that with microscopy, right? If you know, as a microscopist, if you know the limitations of your microscope, and if you have, have a healthy skepticism about neural networks and deep learning, the world is your oyster, right? Because you can, you can combine these things in ways that, you know, you, you, you wouldn't have thought possible like a decade ago. So that's my current playground. I'm, I'm very interested in, in knowing where these technologies break and in seeing if we can make them better. So, so another good point that you raise is, you know, 10 years ago, this wouldn't have been possible. Uh, and I think there's a lot of things that there's a lot of things to be revisited. People have had great absolutely looked at it and it couldn't didn't go anywhere, so they've put it to bed. And in some cases, they've they've lost it. You know, they've put it under the bed, a mattress, and, and it's gone. And, and you know, there's a lot of good ideas that could be easily brought back to the table and are now possible. I'm still not convinced that you can still paint a bee's wing and see the oxygen changes. <laughs> that, mm -hmm. Me too. I, our sensitivities have improved, the speed has improved, but I've still got my doubts about that one. But again, it's things like that suddenly are now possible or potentially now possible. Yeah, exactly. And so my advice to you know, all the scientists I listen to is if you don't already write down your ideas, because even if you never look at your lab notebook, the action of, at least for me, writing the idea helps it stick. And as you say, you know, there, there have been times 
a few times that I can think of in my in my career, my admittedly short career, where an idea that I had a few years ago is, is which wasn't feasible then, it would have been like a junky idea has come back for exactly the reason you know you you say, Peter. I mean, we're we're kind of in this unprecedented time where technology is improving all the time, right? So something can be possible in one area that makes it possible. In, you know, an idea in another area that wouldn't have been feasible a few years ago. So it's good to pay attention to that. Absolutely. Which may be actually one of the first things you said when you started your job was to go and have lunch with all the different academic leads. Because <clears throat> it's important to have those contacts because they, they, they will be aware of possibilities or developments that you won't be. And it's bringing that together. I say your latest publication, it's got expertise from all over the world <clears throat> coming together. Uh, yes. It, we can't do it all alone. Yeah, exactly. Nobody has all the answers all the time. Yeah, no, we can't do it alone. Okay, think talking of answers. Another picture, which, which you said, which is intriguing. I, I presume you are the person in the middle here. Yes, yes, exactly. That was in Iceland. Um, so Iceland is a fantastic country. I mean, I would highly urge everybody to visit if you have the chance when the, you know, when you can at some point. But uh, one of the amazing things about it is that it's kind of geothermal, and so they have all of these vents and geysers. In fact, the word geyser came from Iceland. So this is like in one of these areas where it was very cold, I think, outside, but there was hot air steaming from the ground in, in, in like a geothermal uh, energy park in, in, in uh, Iceland. And so I was just standing in the middle of that uh, rising hot air as it came off from a fissure in the ground. So did you do a lot of traveling or was it a lot of traveling, obviously, up until now. Oh, yes, I, 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 I love to, to travel. I've been to you know, close to, you know, I, I lost count, maybe 40 plus countries. Um, so I, I, I love to, uh, to go and see the world. And this was one, one of the vacations um, a couple of years before we had our daughter that my wife and I took driving a car across Iceland, which you can actually do in about a week, given how small that country is and how good the roads are. And this one? This one was uh, sort of our baby moon, right? Uh, um, it was a vacation right before my wife could no longer travel in Acadia National Park in Maine, which is also definitely a recommendation. It's beautiful there. So this is on a little island called Mount Desert Island, and we're looking, looking over woods into uh, the ocean, uh, lots of other little islands. That's fantastic. I, I, I travel a lot with work, but, but actually... Mm -hmm. Traveling outside of that, not so often, actually. Mm. Uh, quite often to the UK, and certainly this this this, this holiday, uh, we'll definitely be in the UK. We're not going outside. Yeah, um, just unnecessary, I think. UK's got some great. Me places. too. Uh, I'm not saying we're going to Birmingham though. I, I said it's good, but maybe it's not quite that good for holiday there. <laughs> that that's for sure. not quite that good. So, and he said you travelled across there in a week, but you also, uh, when you took your job at Janelia. Did you not, you drove your car across the country, didn't you? Which was a... Oh, yeah. Yeah, so uh, between my PhD and Janelia, I, uh, I bought my car, which I still use today, a 2006 Prius. And I, I drove it across the country with my dad from uh, Seattle, where my parents live, to Virginia, where Janelia is. But even, maybe even an even more crazy story than that. So, like I said, I was burned out after my postdoc, and I needed a break before I started my, my PI position at NIH. And so I bought a car in Dresden, Europe with some of my friends, scientist friends that I met in Woods Hole at a uh, physiology course. And by the way, side note, Woods Hole is an amazing place. Everybody should go and take courses at the MBL. But uh, I, I bought a car in Dresden and drove it across uh, Europe and Asia. The idea was to try and get to Mongolia. So over three months, uh, approximately, I drove across many countries then uh, as part of this so-called Mongol rally which uh, people can Google. And so I, I actually ended up getting out of uh, flying back in Azerbaijan, but my friends drove further into uh, Russia and Kazakhstan and eventually sold the car in Russia and drove back from, from, and flew back from Russia. So that was quite a journey as well. And also a great thing to do sort of between careers, right? Between, as you have these kind of periods of your time in life, right? I mean, I would highly recommend people take these breaks. It doesn't have to be driving across uh, Europe and Asia, but it was a fantastic thing to do at the time. Yeah, so you don't just drive your team, you drive across the US, you drive across Iceland, you drive into oh, yeah. Australia, it's just <laughs> yeah. definitely a theme going through there. And, and you still got the same car? I still have the 2006 car. Yeah, we, we don't have that many miles on it because we barely drive it. 
Okay, so you drive, <laughs> see, this doesn't figure, you drive all the way across a country or countries, and yet you hardly use Different car, car different car in uh, Europe and Asia. That was a 1994 Opel Astra, which, which, which did surprisingly well across uh, Europe and Asia. I think there was only one servicing we had to do when we broke the muffler of the car. Yeah. Just, just, just before we end, we've, we've talked about where you, your background started, where you got to. Where are you heading? What, what's the big unmet need? What's the next big thing? Where should I think, I, 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 yeah, so, so right now I'm focused a lot on adaptive optics. So I, I think it's, it's sort of a crime that, you know, most of us that we do, when we do diffraction limited imaging with a spinning disc confocal, let's say even, you know, through a sample that is much more than one cell thick, we're not getting the full performance of our microscope because the sample screws up the performance as you go deep. And I don't think adaptive optics or AO, as it's called, is cheap or robust enough to just apply. It hasn't really taken off. So I would like to try and contribute to that and um, see if I can make it more of something one can just insert into a fluorescence microscope. I think there are gains to be, to be had to just get the fraction limited imaging in thicker specimens. Even if you're not looking in something as thick as a mouse brain, I still think there is room to be had. And then sort of, you know, not uh, sort of related is this area of deep learning, right? So I would like to see how far one can push that area in conjunction with microscopy. So to what extent can you improve the resolution of your microscope and how much can you believe it uh, as a result, right? If you have this ground truth uh, data, let's say in a stead microscope or an expansion microscope, you know, can you, can you actually apply that to a wide field or a confocal or a sim and boost the resolution and how far can you go? You know, I, uh, these questions are really interesting to me because I have kind of a skeptical eye in co you know, whenever I look at a computational reconstruction. So I, I'm kind of interested for my own lab to figure this out, right? Like where are the breakpoints of these digital technologies? I think there's tremendous room and creativity to be had in merging these different kinds of microscopes. So that's one of the things that I would, uh, that I'm pursuing myself and my group. But, um, you know, like you say, I also like to look at ideas that are older, that are decades older in some cases, right? I mean, the astronomers have been doing adaptive optics and ground-based telescopes for a long time. So I think there may be more we can learn from that. Um, and then, you know, I'm, I'm, also, I'm also always interested in talking to probe developers. If somebody said the, the gain in the brain is mostly in the stain, right? So I think that's absolutely true. We have to pay attention to the kind of probe development efforts that are being done because that really drives development in fluorescence microscopy as well. Yeah, so these okay. are some of the things that I'm, I'm working on. I guess they all go hand in hand because you then back to sensitivity. If you can improve yep. sensitivity or capture of photons, then the probes don't become so limiting, but if they improve, you, everything is a step. They all go together. And I think actually probably computers and computer speed has been the biggest enabler mm -hmm. to be able to compute, to develop, to drive even the microscopes that are now. Exactly. Different. And I think, you know, computing speed is getting faster and cheaper all the time, right? Whereas microscopy hardware is kind of fixed or, you know, it hasn't come down like so much, right? I mean, um, yeah. And, uh, Oh, do you know what? I forgot my last question. Darn it. What's your favorite technique currently? Favorite technique? Well, I mean, I love light sheet microscopy um, and the kind of plethora of different implementations of it, right, that are all um, suited to different things. I mean, I think, you know, one thing to remember in fluorescence microscopy is that there is no omniscient microscope, which is why it's such a playground, um, you know, for a developer like me. Of course, the the flip side of that, the caveat is that anybody who tries to convince you that their microscope is the best for all samples is selling you snake oil. So that's kind of a, a cautionary note, right? I mean, that, that um, you know, that, that, that's what makes it so fun, I think, to, 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 to work in this, in this field, right? Yeah, it's a very good point about just, there's no one solution to anything. Yeah. Uh, there really isn't, which is you gotta such a big market. Pick the tool for the job, right? I mean, that's sort of a key, key thing to think about. Yeah. You know, that's food for thought. Can you work? Can, can there be a system that could be the, the magic tool? Can we have <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't think so. <laughs> just do everything. It's be best at every element. Where's it? I would love to be proven wrong, but I don't, I don't think so. No, but, but that's today. Ten years' time? 
Come back maybe. on the question. <laughs> maybe there'll be something out there. Harry, you've been great to talk to. No, thank you so much. It's been so fun, yeah. Uh, it's been brilliant. And good luck with the next big steps. Thank you. Uh, Thanks and, so much. And with your little ones, little steps. Yes, true. Yeah. In fact, the little steps are probably the things that I think about the most right now. So, yeah. 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 So, Harry, thank you. Thank you for listening to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio podcast sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. To view all audio and video recordings from this series, please visit bitesizebio.com forward slash the microscopists.